Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I'm going to have a presentation I put together based upon a book I read. The title of that book is A Father, Son, and the CIA. You can see it if you're on YouTube. Picture of the book. It's really hard to come by. Actually, I paid $20 for this small, kind of uh, very well-written uh, paperback. But I think it has a lot of first-person information. It was written by a guy by the name of Dr. Harvey Weinstein. And he's actually done a few books. There's another one based upon that same book. Another one's Psychiatry and the CIA Victims of Mind Control. It's basically the same book. Um, both are very expensive, hard to come by. You can see them here on uh, Amazon. I'm going to play some information. It's a documentary titled Eminent Monsters. that goes in detail about you and Cameron. I'm going to play that uh, in a little minute, about 12 minutes of a 90-minute documentary, which I recommend people watch. And I'll put a link to uh, the show. I think it's on Amazon Prime. And just to read this in, kind of the general blurb for the book, Father, Son, and CIA, kind of a book I kind of blew the dust off, is a son's story of his father's illness, treatment, and resultant destruction by the psychic driving experiments of Dr. Ewan Cameron at Montreal's Allen Memorial Institute in the 1950s. The effect of the father's illness on the family is recounted as is the son's gradual realization only when he is himself about to become a psychiatrist that something abnormal must have taken place during those long hospitalizations. Weinstein tells other patient stories in some details he recounts the legal fight for compensation awarded finally in October 1988. And one of the reasons why I, this story is very important is because other victims have come forward. So this book details nine victims that were suing. There was over 100 um, people they know who went through these experiments, these behavior modification experiences. They're called torture. It involved torture, but it, I think there's a very important distinction in that they were trying to get results. So it wasn't just pure torture uh, on these people. Obviously, they didn't have informed consent. A lot of those people went in with psychological problems that could could have been helped some other way. Instead, they got isolation and really got electroshock therapy, very brutal electroshock therapy like uh, Dr. Harvey Weinstein's dad got brutal electric shock electroshock therapy. He really wasn't the same. And some people were turned into like vegetables, really brutal. And another book that you can read, kind of a, well, a good overview about this is by Alfred McCoy. And some people may, that name may be familiar. And you'll see him in this documentary when I play it. Uh, he also wrote The Politics of Heroin, Southeast Asia. Um, full title of The Politics of Heroin is, uh, let's see if I can find it here. But there's, that book is kind of well known about the CIA, uh, Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, yeah. But this one has a section on it. You'll see Alfred McCoy, like I said, in this documentary. And uh, this is really the beginnings. And, and they find out later, McCoy actually states that this whole program, and I'm not sure Dr. Weinstein knew, but this whole program that was part of the sub-projects of MKUltra, sub-project 86, I believe, and it was okayed personally by Alan Dulles. So there's a direct connection to... Uh, the overview of the CIA and the, the way that they sent out all these things. Um, but it's a mistake to kind of view the whole story of you and Cameron as if he's alone because there was another guy, his boss was he, he Eb was his name. And there were other doctors as well. And other people that you and Cameron 
influenced as well. So it's kind of a more of a network. And I think people focusing on just on you and Cameron, especially with the other um, the other projects that were going on at the same time all around the United States that were be, you know, basically being financed by different groups, CIA front groups. One I think was called the group for human ecology. I think it was out of Cornell. Um, so there is a web and it is kind of interesting because the son, Dr. Harvey Weinstein got in, seems to, uh, got into psychiatry at Stanford and knew Philip Zimbardo. I think that he, Zimbardo wrote a piece with him and Zimbardo's famous for the Stanford prison experiment. And then Milgram pops up again and people know I'm going to play the Milgram experiment, but there is a possibility that that Milgram experiment, which is really about uh, people, how much, you know, pain they will inflict if there's an authority figure around. It's kind of like a test case going back to World War II. And Milgram may have been financed by the CA to carry out that uh, inquiry itself, which was not as ugly and brutal as what happened with Ewan McCameron. And I'm going to read, I've got some selections out here. I'm going to read from the book after I watch the documentary. I think it's important to see this visually. And so it's, I'm trying not to just focus on one book, but just kind of focus on this event, pictures of Raven's Clots, very strange named place at the Allen Memorial Institute where this psychic driving in the sleep room uh, took place. It's very sinister looking and you'll see this in the documentary. But uh, yeah, there's a bunch of other figures and I highly recommend people check out this, this Eminent Monsters because it goes in an arc from you and Cameron through some torture that took place in Northern Ireland where they intentionally caused PTSD against people they thought were I think either in the IRA or against uh, the, you know, the UK government and then to the modern use of isolation and <clears throat> sensory dep deprivation today that's being used on ostensible terrorists, what the U.S. calls terrorists. And I did a show on Kit Klarenberg that shows that this MK Ultra techniques are still in use today and should uh, give people pause and scare them. You know, it's pretty scary. So, again, this, uh, let me see what other slides I've got. So this is uh, Dr. Harvey Weinstein, retired psychiatrist living in California. Uh, and so that's what you'll see him in this documentary, too. And he works for the Human Rights Center at University of California, Berkeley, my alma mater, and uh, still kind of active in this. And this is the Human Rights Center. You can go check that out. I'll put a link to this group as well. And you can see on YouTube here, Psychiatry and the CIA Victims of Mind Control. So that's kind of the follow-on book to the original book, Father, Son, and CIA. And this was also written by somebody in the Human Rights Center, Eric Stover. I think he's the head or was the head at one point, Breaking of Bodies and Minds. So these people are involved in this kind of stuff. And here's the Eminent Monsters link. And you'll see kind of the shadowy Raven's Claw building here in the background. And these are kind of these new... Um, there's going to be some new saga, I think, is the acronym of this new updated um, uh, lawsuit that's taking place. So here's Eminent Monsters. Highly recommend that. But let me get this uh, video queued up and you can watch it. It's not the full video. 
Let's do this. So it's about, I think I have it at 13 minutes. And I might pause here and just kind of for commentary. A few moments ago, Dr. Ewan Cameron of Montreal, chairman of the organizing committee, opened this third world congress of psychiatry with these words. These are the days and hours are the occasions that summon up determination, fire the imagination, and drive us forward in this greatest of endeavors. I to go see the Allen Memorial Institute, where my father spent on and off four tragic years. I remember my dad before, and I remember my dad after. He breaks his book down into three sections. His father's kind of decline. They didn't, family had no idea what was going on. It wasn't until, and, and Weinstein shows, it wasn't until he read John Mark's book uh, that he made a connection and then started doing the research. And then the third part of the book is the lawsuit that they successfully settled. Uh, only nine people, like I said. And he actually went and met, met with some of the other litigants. I'll show pictures of them and uh, talk about them briefly, too, in a minute. It was one year after my bar mitzvah, so I was 14. And I remember the Christmas holidays that year uh, with my father pacing the house, going back and forth, back and forth, singing this sort of crazy song from, I think it's the 30s, called Mary's Dotes and Dozy Dotes and Little Lambsy Divey, over and over and over again. And my being very puzzled and not understanding what was happening which is how he ended up in 1956 going to see Ewan Cameron at the Allen Memorial Institute. Infamous Staples. Yeah, so that they call that Raven's Claw, but that's where a lot of the sleep experiments took place. And I'll show some pictures of it. But like I said, he worked, uh, Cameron worked on a guy by the name of H-E-B-B. This building, for me, represents Cameron. So I'm face-to-face -face right now with my nemesis. I get this very strange feeling in the pit of my stomach. Um, inside were all these terrible things happening. And here I am in my seventh decade, and it's like it all happened yesterday. By the 1950s, the Allen Memorial Institute was one of the world's leading psychiatric hospitals. Its director, Dr. Ewan Cameron, was the president of the American, Canadian, and World Psychiatric Associations. My mother thought that Dr. Cameron was God. My mother thought Dr. Cameron was God. Rudolf Hess was once called the conscience of the party. He had been a psychiatrist at the trials at Nuremberg after the war, and she trusted him implicitly. In 1945, the US intelligence agencies had asked Dr. Cameron to examine Hitler's former deputy, Rudolf Hess, at the Nuremberg war crimes trial. Rudolf Hess, guilty of conspiracy and crimes against peace, life imprisonment. 
examining Nazi indoctrination at close quarters shaped the way Dr. Cameron thought about the vulnerability of the mind. Hess always claimed that he was being poisoned in his food, if I remember correctly, too. So he was pretty paranoid. He might have been. I don't remember. Um, I'm trying to decide if that's a photograph of Cameron. You know, it's very interesting that this is the only photograph in which there is no name and that he was the founder of this place. Isn't that odd? It goes to the second, third, fourth, etc. Directors. How peculiar. Miss Cameron with his crew in this photograph. Somehow do no harm got forgotten. Pretty upsetting being in here, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with the Hippocratic Oath. Consent, informed consent. None of these people really would have consented to anything they went through uh, there. But like I said, it's worse than torture. Something else, there was a an aim for the torture, which was behavior modification. And um, I can hold it together only so long, and then I kind of get overwhelmed by, uh, by the feelings. Um, Where is Cameron's office? It's here. Ewan Cameron was born in Bridge of Allen, Stirlingshire, in 1901. The son of a Presbyterian minister, Cameron soon outgrew Scotland. In 1942, he became an American citizen. Ambitious and driven, Cameron dreamed of winning the Nobel Prize for his work on the frontiers of psychiatry. So we have just come into the original office of Ewan Cameron. On the wall, there's an article from the Montreal Star about the donation of the mansion for the development of this program. Um, as we look at the window, we can see the stables. The stables is where uh, the sleep rooms were, um, where the uh, psychic driving experiments took place. We were very afraid of the sleep room. People in there were like babies, they cried, and they were very disoriented. We used to walk very carefully against the side of the corridor that was opposite the sleep room with our backs to the wall when we go by. Very strange. I think it's very easy for people to say that this is the story of one patient. To see this only and simply as a horrendous experience that happened in Montreal in the 1950s is to really miss the big picture. There they are, citizens of Montreal, going about their business efficiently and politely. Appearances are misleading. In 1951, Britain, America, and Canada held a secret meeting in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Montreal. Among those attending 
were Henry T. Tizard of Britain's Ministry of Defence, Dr. Ormond Salant of the Canadian Defence Board, and scientist Donald Hebb. Two projects were discussed. The first was the SEER programme. There was some discussion of defensive techniques, of basically developing a method for training uh, allied aviators, personnel likely to be captured, fall in the hands of the Soviet bloc, so that they could be trained to resist torture. Sometimes, in spite of everything a man can do, he falls into the hands of the enemy. If you were an airman whose plane was shot down in enemy territory, or a soldier, or a Marine captured in combat on the enemy lines, your first feeling might be one of helplessness, as if suddenly the whole world had dropped out from under you, leaving you at the enemy's mercy. Such a feeling is quite understandable for a minute or two. SEER stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance and Escape. But there was a hidden agenda at the meeting. The primary objective was offensive in developing techniques that we could use against captured Soviets. So it was effectively a mobilization of psychology, in part in the United States. That research was dominant within the Canadian universities for the better part of a decade. The price of intelligence is a more complex brain, more easily disturbed, more vulnerable to emotional disturbance. Dr. Hebb, who was just talking to us, paid healthy students good wages simply to rest on a bed like this with nothing to see or hear or touch. They were strangely affected lying here. They had hallucinations. For those who endured a few days, the world seemed distorted afterwards, and for a while, simple tests were difficult to do. Small wonder that solitary confinement is used in so-called brainwashing. Soon researchers began similar experiments in a psychiatric hospital in the UK. In the US, the CIA had over 160 secret projects in 80 institutions. $25 million was allocated to human experimentation. It was codenamed MKUltra. What came back was a somnolent ah, man who barely could talk, who um, couldn't really carry on a conversation, who lay down on a couch all day, mostly sleeping, who um, making up things. A contra trait he came up with that if someone had the trait of being very passive, if you got rid of that trait, a contra trait would emerge to where they would be more assertive. Initially, Dr. Cameron believed this would help him cure mental illness. Maybe at some level in Cameron's brain, it was to you know find some way to cure schizophrenia, but he wasn't treating schizophrenia, certainly not in my father's case. And it was an experimental procedure. My parents never agreed to it. Dr. Cameron didn't set out to develop interrogation methods, but his techniques proved useful to the CIA. 
and in front of me is a man in a white coat and a stethoscope. So this is kind of how it moves on to the behavior modification and torture in Ireland. And they were deliberately causing these guys PTSD. I don't know how involved they were in the IRA or what. But you can go back and watch that on the documentary. And I get a sort of 30-second medical exam. Say, uh, shout in my chest and just nods, in which I'm dragged away. They pulled the, the hood back real tight. You thought you were going to suffocate, and they just used your face as a punch bag. I was squealing like a pig. What do you hear, the wee Fenian bastard? That's all they were saying, like, you know. After considerable experimentation, it was found if individuals were placed with their eyes bandaged, they would not only pass into a confused and extremely anxious state, but they would show some interesting phenomena. In addition to the mental disturbance produced by the sensory deprivation and sleep deprivation, you're adding in pain, which is going to increase stress yet again, which will then lead to these strange mental experiences occurring. Some strange things were happening. Mail was arriving at our house open. There were all these strange clicks on the telephone. Weird, because it sounds like, you know, somebody's tapping a phone or, I mean, this is intimidating. You think this is realistic. And they said, could be, could not be. They, they can do all this stuff without you even knowing about it. So could be. And then a couple of very strange events occurred. I had been to dinner with my wife, and all of a sudden, someone is motioning to me to move over. I get out of the car to see flames coming from under the car, and the whole car was total. Okay, I could say that's just coincidence. That's really odd, right? Then about two weeks after that, I'm driving to pick up my kids from a school dance, clear night, clear road, from behind me comes a car with no headlights on, slams into me, pushes me off the road and disappears. It's something that I really haven't spoken about and you know, nothing like this of course ever happened again. But it does, it does raise interesting questions. All right, so that was it. Let's see, I guess the stream is gone, I don't know. Um, Here's like a sign of Donald O. Hebb's experimental cubicle. This is from McCoy's book. So this is kind of what they were doing. And I heard something. I haven't gotten it confirmed yet, but it was um, – there's a guy from Canada. was the, the, the guy who wrote Hallelujah, was supposedly involved in one of these, um, one of these experiments. Leonard Cohen, yeah. So I have to go verify that. But he was apparently one of these subjects right here, just like this. Um, so, you know, we can watch the Milgram experiment, too. Let's try that. Let's see if I can get this. Which is interesting. Thank you. 
A decade earlier, psychologist Stanley Milgram had also looked at how we respond to authority. In order to understand how people were induced to obey unjust regimes and participate in atrocities such as the Holocaust, he set up an experiment. Volunteers were told they were taking part in scientific research to improve memory. Would you open those and tell me which of you is which, please? Teacher. Separated by a screen, the teacher would ask the learner questions in a word game and administer an electric shock when the answer was incorrect. He was told to increase the voltage with each wrong answer. Cloud, horse, rock, house. Answer, wrong. 150 volts. Answer, horse. Oh. Experiment. That's all. Get me out of here. Get me out of here, please. Continue, please. Go right the experiment requires you continue, teacher. Please continue. Participants didn't know that the learner was really an actor, and the so-called shocks harmless. You're gonna get a shock. 180 volts. Oh. I can't stand the pain. Get me out of here. Stand I'm not gonna kill that man. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Walk, dance, truck, music. Two-thirds of volunteers were prepared to administer a potentially fatal electric shock when encouraged to do so by what they perceived as a legitimate authority figure. In this case, a man in a white coat. 375 volts. I think something's happened to that ball in there. Milgram's findings horrified America. They showed that decent American citizens were as capable of committing acts against their conscience as the Germans had been under the Nazis. So that's the Milgram experiment. And then the new, this is the old lawsuit involved Dr. Harvey Weinstein. This is the new one, Saga, S-A-A-G-A. And I'll put the link to this too. But uh, we have a team. It's a class action. I mentioned Heb. I don't know how to pronounce that. Heb, Heb. So um, there's more than Cameron. So Dimitri Pitnicki, Heinz Lehman, Peter Roper, Alan Mann. So kind of a disturbing, uh, disturbing story. I'm going to read from a little bit of Father, Son, and CIA. And then if you guys have any questions or anything, we can do that. There was also something called the Cooper Report that came out that, my understanding, it's a complete whitewash of what happened. It's a government-sponsored uh, report. And you can, you can find a copy of the Cooper Report. He's a lawyer, covered everything, but um, I haven't read through that yet. I intend, I intend to at some point. But like I said, they were doing it. People called it torture. It's more than torture. They were definitely subjecting them to all kinds of nasty stuff. But it was wor it was worse than torture. They were trying to get outcomes. That's really the whole point. So let me see if I can find this. So this again is Father, Son, and CAA. This is chapter six, my awakening. There's an old Yiddish 
Yiddish expression that my grandmother used to say. It translates roughly as follows. You should only grow like an onion with your head in the ground. When I first read the search for the Manchurian candidate, John Marx's expose of the CIA mind control experiments, I felt as though my head had been buried for a very long time. I had wasted years diagnosing my father with a variety of psychotic labels. I blamed myself. I had perused the psychiatric literature in a lame search for answers that could not be found. I had read a couple of Cameron's articles, but their significance had not penetrated my thinking. Perhaps I never wanted to lift my head out of the mud. Maybe I was afraid of the truth, that the truth would prove to be even more painful than the memories. In the spring of 1979, shortly after my discovery of the CIA funding of Ewan Cameron's work, I wrote John Marks a letter asking how I could learn more about the subject, and more specifically about my father's involvement in the program. In his reply, he expressed his sadness over what had happened to my father, and also raised an issue which I had never considered. Quote, I think that you are much more likely to get some satisfaction by a direct suit against the government. Indeed, I know two lawyers who have, have expressed interest in representing clients in such a suit, and I have referred two other patients of Cameron to one of them. I'm taking the liberty of sending your letter to the lawyers. The thought of a lawsuit was totally foreign to me. It was also clear that my father felt so much shame and guilt about the experience that a lawsuit would potentially be quite debilitating. Still, I had recently learned that my mother had sold some pieces of fine china so that they could have extra cash, and that the sterling silver was going to be next. While I felt that no amount of money could compensate for wasted years, I began to think how wonderful it would be if the last years of my parents' lives could be free of monetary pressures. Even more important to me, however, was the hope that my father would be vindicated, that he could lo lose the sense of shame. No longer would he have to feel that he was guilty of some wrongdoing. As for me, I am not by nature a litigious person, the thought of lawyers in courtrooms made me very hesitant to consider a lawsuit. I fretted and procrastinated about this and kept it as usual to myself. In the late spring of 1980, I mentioned to my mother that I had read a book that revealed a link between Ewan Cameron and the CIA. When she mentioned it to my father, he responded at first with a shrug of disbelief and then became increasingly agitated. Clearly, no discussion was possible. I doubted that he even understood what the issues were. My mother was very distressed, both about the revelations and about my father's inability to deal with this news. After a particularly upsetting conversation with her, I decided that there was no point in pursuing the matter. At that point, any further discussion was cut short by the sudden death of my brother-in-law, Dan. Our lives were quickly taken up by my sister's needs, and I never really had the opportunity to discuss the revelations of the CIA involvement with my father. So it just shows that you know he didn't really know what was going on. But he has a, a very long chapter on you and Cameron. He goes in detail about Cameron. And I can read some of that. But uh, I'm going to read some of the other victims that were in the lawsuit with him. Uh, moving forward to page 85. By December 1982, my father had become a participant in a multiple plaintiff suit against the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States. The suit, Orlikow versus the United States of America, was filed in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, Six Canadians were part of the original complaint. Three more, including my father, were to follow. The Toronto Star on August 18, 1985, pro profiled the plaintiffs as follows. 1. Velma Orlikow, wife of Winnipeg Member of Parliament David Orlikow. Under Cameron's supervision, her suit alleges she was given LSD 14 times during 1956 and 1957 and was forced to undergo psychic driving. At first, she was subjected to the tapes for periods of four hours at a time 
but until she refused to continue as an outpatient in December 1963, she had been undergoing psychic driving six hours each day. She has suffered sporadic debilitating depression since. Jean-Charles Page, or Page. Under Cameron's supervision, Page was given a variety of drugs and given 30 straight days of psychic driving, plus 36 consecutive days of induced sleep. Three, Robert Logie. He, too, was given LSD, a variety of other drugs, shock treatment, and spent 23 days in induced sleep. Quote, I can't sleep at night. I haven't been able to sleep for more than three hours a night since they put me to sleep for those 23 days, unquote. Janine Huard, quote, given electric shock and psychic driving. Five, Lydia Stadler, had one of the longest days at the Allen from 1954 to treatment as an outpatient in 1964. Her mental injuries are regarded as permanent, and Stadler is now in an institution. Mary Morrow, six. The pattern with massive electric convulsive treatments. Seven, Rita Zimmerman, given 56 days of sleep treatment and 30 electroshock treatments between July 3rd and September 22nd, 1959, to the point where she was so depatterned that Cameron noted she had become, quote, incontinent of stool on occasion, unquote. Eight, Florence Langlebin. Returned to the Allen August 20th, 1959, and from that date until November 6th, 1959, the suit alleges she received a total of 43 days of drug-induced sleep, 15 electroconvulsive shock treatments, 32 days of negative psychic driving, and 11 days of positive psychic driving, and then nine, Louis Weinstein, Harvey's dad, a man with no life, he lost everything. So like I said, he has a very long chapter on camera, and I can go in detail about it. I'm really kind of more interested in their outlook and what what the real totality of the experiments were at that time. So it's pretty disturbing, but he was definitely into de-patterning, electroshock therapy. Um, and they were definitely testing these out on different people. Heb was definitely involved. And I'll talk about him here. D.O. Hebb, one of the world's great psychologists, was chairman of the psychology department during these years. Hebb and his research group had a particular interest in the influence of sensory stimulation on animal development, in particular mental development and ability to learn. This interest gave rise to a series of experiments which were designed to examine how humans are dependent on their environment for the stimulation it provides, stimulation that, in turn, activates our mental processes. This led to the design of an experiment that ushered in the era of sensory deprivation research. College student volunteers were paid $20 a day to spend time in a cubicle, which was partially soundproofed. They lay on a bed with their eyes covered by translucent plastic shield, allowing light but no pattern vision. Hands were enclosed in tubes to prevent their being used for touch, sensation. Ears were covered with earphones from which there was a constant buzzing. A foam rubber U-shaped cushion cradled the head and covered the ears. The students remained in this fashion except to go to eat or go to the bathroom. Most of the students could tolerate this procedure for only two or three days. The maximum was six. The effects on these 22 male students were startling. Boredom gave way to restlessness and an inability to concentrate. Problem solving was impaired. Visual hallucinations and disturbances of body awareness began to occur. Feelings of being detached from their bodies or, quote, depersonalization, unquote, developed. Heb notes, quote, the subject's very identity had begun to disintegrate, unquote. Subsequent work showed that while in this condition, students would listen to material that they would normally treat with contempt, such as information on the occult. Interesting. Interest in such oddities persisted afterward in some subjects. 
Further work in sensory deprivation was carried out primarily in the United States. The interest was high because of concerns about the effects of spaceflight on astronauts because of the effects on some patients of the monotonous experience of being in a respirator and also because of the potential use of sensory deprivation in interrogation. So that's just one of them. Let's see. Um, there's some other experiments here. Like when they break out the curare, curare is like a poison that's derived from either a plant or an animal in South America where they shoot it at other animals and it puts them into a catatonic state. Like they literally put that in people. This is from page 123. The second series of experiments revolved around attempts to diminish the conduction of stimuli within the body. In this work, the experimental drug Cernial, which was PCP, was used. The effects included apathy, anxiety, disturbed body image, unreality, depersonalization, thought disorder, disorganization, hallucinations, paranoia, and catatonia. Third, in attempts to reduce further the activity of the patients, the depatterning experiments utilizing massive shock treatment were de developed. Cameron also immobilized patients by injecting them with curare and beeswax and even reported placing patients under hospital bakers so that the warmth would increase receptivity. So by 1961, Cameron was using sensory deprivation, prolonged sleep plus sensory de deprivation, massive electroshock therapy plus sleep plus drugs such as PCP and curare to immobilize patients all in order to facilitate their receptivity to driving statements. So it was all in the aim to get ideas in there. That was part of the depatterning and uh, repatterning process. But there's just a lot in this book. It's really, there's a lot of information. And they go into Blue Brook, Artichoke, um, and McCoy talks about that as well. So there's pictures of his family, Cameron. Cameron died... Went some on hiking on a tall mountain and had a heart attack and died. Kind of that was his end, but uh, he was definitely connected. He actually influenced like there was a Arabic doctor who learned techniques from Cameron who ended up torturing. There's a story of a CIA agent who got abducted in Beirut and underwent like it's like a full circle, like the CIA is torturing other people and then a high-level CIA agent, I think it was the head of the CIA office, Buckley, in Beirut, ends up getting the same treatment and killed in in, uh, in Beirut by Hezbollah or somebody affiliated with Hezbollah. So there's like a known, there was like a known kind of Arab uh, mind control doctor like that. But uh, it's a really good book. I think it's a lot, kind of a lost story, this father, son, and CIA. So that's why I kind of read through it, read that, and... Uh, Wanted to share that. So I'll put the notes to where you can find this book and also Eminent Monsters in the show notes. So if anybody has any questions, just let me know. But, I mean, there's not much more to say other than just go read this book by Dr. Harvey Weinstein. And then Eminent Monsters, you can tell it's a, uh, it's a UK production. So they focus a lot of, on the, the troubles or the conflict in Northern Ireland. And the use of use of behavioral modification there, and I think that what happened is kind of sad. Like they tried to sue the government and a lot of the victims of the behavior modification in Northern Ireland, and they lost. They weren't able to find any any justice or anything like that. So anyway, I think that's about it. Thanks a lot for listening.